Welcome to show 55 of the C-Suite podcast, the second of three shows that we're recording in partnership with Microsoft from their Future Decoded event in Excel London. The event is taking place over two days where around 14,000 of the brightest decision makers, developers and IT professionals are enjoying inspirational talks, hands-on workshops and an interactive partner area. Through discussions around digital transformation, artificial intelligence, cloud for good, and digital skills, Microsoft is presenting an inspired vision of the uh, digital business of tomorrow. And we've been giving you a little taster of what's hot on the agenda this year on these podcasts. And in this episode, we are focusing on the theme of technology for good. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and I can't think of a better way to start uh, this podcast than by welcoming Haiyan Zhang, uh, Innovation Director at Microsoft Research Cambridge, and someone I am thrilled to get the chance to talk to as she has the most inspired inspiring stories to tell. Uh, hi, Anne. Welcome to the show. Hi, Russell. Um, hi. Now, your LinkedIn profile, because I, I was doing a little bit of background reading on you, uh, describes it starts off and it describes you as a designer, engineer, and maker of things. Uh, now, I think that's underplaying it uh, slightly, given uh, some of the stuff you've uh, recently been working on, including uh, the fact that you've created this life-changing device uh, to help people suffering from Parkinson's disease, which is what we're going to be talking about now. Um, Tell us about Project Emma, um, but maybe can you start by telling, telling us how you met the person it's named after? Well, so I met Emma about a year and a half ago. She uh, was diagnosed with Parkinson's at the age of 28, um, and she uh, is a creative director, uh, a graphic designer, and uh, through the Parkinson's, she lost the ability to uh, write and draw because of her, her tremors in her hands. And so I met her through uh, the BBC Big Life Fix TV series, okay. which was on BBC Two, uh, aired last Christmas. And um, through that, I began working with her to see if we could create some kind of technology to help her overcome her tremors and regain her writing ability. I, I, I guess, because I, I have obviously, you know, been doing some research on, on the story, and, and I guess for me, one of the most, um, you, you know, sort of like surprising things is how young she was when she found out that yeah. she's got Parkinson's. And, and, and that, I suppose, highlights the issue, doesn't it? Quite That it can affect anyone. Yeah. I mean, she has um, early onset Parkinson's and there is a, you know, a vocal but small population of, of uh, sufferers. Uh, Emma's actually doing a, an amazing job being a spokesperson, bringing awareness into Parkinson's disease. And she's working with Parkinson's UK to evaluate new digital tools for, for sufferers as Amazing. well. So tell us a little bit about the uh, technology that you've created with her. Well, so I think we were just, you know, obviously a lot of hard work, but also incredibly lucky in that uh, working with Emma, I sort of had a hunch that perhaps something to do with vibration uh, might be able to help her distract her brain from, from the tremors themselves. And uh, so uh, along with my colleagues, we built some prototypes and uh, it was actually one in a series of lots of different prototypes that we tried. And this one just seemed to have quite a significant impact on her. Uh, so we, we went from there, really. And this is the watch strap. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. it's a, a wearable device. It's a watch that vibrates at different frequencies and different patterns that Emma is able to control with a, a tablet device. Um, and through these different uh, 
vibrating patterns, uh, Emma's actually able to hold a pen and, and be able to write and draw again. Amazing. Um, so for any of our, our listeners, we'll, we'll share some links, you know, in terms of where to, uh, to actually see some of the videos. Um, but I take it this can be used, you know, it's, it's designed with, with, with Emma, but this is going to be something that can be used for any suffering in, in the future, the, the way so, the vibrations work? I mean, Parkinson's disease, uh, for each individual, uh, they might have quite individualized symptoms. So we know that the watch works for Emma's particular symptoms, and currently we're undertaking some studies to see if it will expand out into other patients. Okay. But it's the start of a, a journey for us. Sure. Um, obviously, we sort of short-circuited a lot of the research process by working so closely with Emma and making something that works and, and she's using. But now we, I think we have to undertake the, the longer-term research to establish how it is effective in, in other people as well. And so can you share with us what the next stage for, for the research for the project is then? Um, so we're currently working with um, clinical researchers, uh, some neuroscience researchers at UCL to conduct uh, sort of a broader study. Um, and we're also uh, evolving the technology internally to make it easier to actually study the effects of the watch. Okay. W would you say it's fair um, for me to say this, but it, you know, it's not the kind of thing that most people would know Microsoft for. Is that a fair statement? Question. Um, I, it's interesting. I, I would. Microsoft is so varied and and uh, does so many different, interesting, amazing things. Yeah. Um, I think it really depends on the audience. Yeah. I mean, I'm sometimes amazed by some of the things that Microsoft does. Uh, for example, some colleagues in Seattle are working on. Uh, uh, trapping mosquitoes and using uh, uh, mosquito uh, blood uh, and analysis to track uh, the outbreak of diseases wow. uh, across, you know, um, populated areas. So yeah. that's amazing to me as well. Well, t tell us some of the other projects that, that you're working on at, at the research lab then, you know, because I, I guess it's specifically within healthcare that you're focusing on. Um, so at the moment, uh, you know, Myself and um, my colleagues were working on a number of different initiatives. We're just starting to explore healthcare and how technology can bring new interventions and um, new thinking into the space. Uh, so one of the other projects that I'm working on is, is called Project Physio. Okay. And this is uh, to do with uh, bringing gaming to cystic fibrosis treatment. So cystic fibrosis is a, a life-limiting disease. You're born with it and throughout your life your internal organs secrete mucus and as young kids uh, they have to do uh, daily strenuous exercises to clear their lungs of this, this mucus, this fluid and uh, so I, I actually met a family in Cornwall, uh, Vicky and her four, four kids and two of her boys have cystic fibrosis and she spends hours a day cajoling her teenage boys to do their physio exercise because in the long run it can save their lives yeah. but for them you know they don't really know because they don't see the impact of that day to day so with my team we're creating some new technologies some connected technologies and cloud platform that basically uh, attaches to existing cystic fibrosis treatment uh, equipment and turns their exercises into video game controls. So they're able to play a video game in undertaking this medical treatment. 
So um, I mentioned before that you know that there was uh, I've watched a couple of the videos. If people want to find out more about some of these projects, where's the best place for them to, to go? Um, I would suggest the Microsoft Research website. Okay. Um, uh, both of these projects uh, will have, I believe, some descriptions up and and, and sort of more project details Brilliant. as well. Okay. Uh, now. Um, you mentioned at the top that you met Emma on uh, on the BBC documentary. Uh, any more TV appearances that we should be aware of? Uh, well, so we've got a new series of Big Life Fix, and we actually have a special episode for the Children in Need campaign oh, by fantastic. the BBC. Okay. So November 8th at 8pm on BBC2 uh, is our special episode hosted by Simon Reeve. <laughs> Amazing. Brilliant. Okay. Well, if anyone's listening, I guess after that, I'm sure that will be available on demand uh, yeah, somewhere on, on iPlayer, online. Perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Uh, truly inspiring stuff. Um, thank you so much for giving up some time to chat with us today, Hyun. Thanks so much, Russell. Thank you. So joining me now before they take to the uh, main stage to talk about a really exciting new educational project are Microsoft's education partner lead, Craig Parker, and former Manchester United and England footballer, Gary Neville, the driving force behind University Academy 92, or UA92 for short, uh, which is what we're here to talk about right now. So uh, Gary, let's come to you first. I know this is your idea and I guess a bit of a, a passion project for you. Uh, can you tell us a, you know, a little bit about how it all came about and what your aims are for UA92? Yeah, it came about a conversation two or three years ago with uh, Professor Amanda Broderick of, at the time, was Salford University. We had a partnership between Salford University and Salford City Football Club, which is the club that we own locally, just uh, a mile out of Manchester. And I was a coach with England. Uh, Amanda was working in, obviously, academia. And we were both seeing and sharing the same experiences around, I suppose, an approach and a feeling that there are no leaders anymore. They don't make people as they used to. They're not tough anymore, these kids nowadays. That sort of attitude. And we're thinking, well, actually, what? I was seeing it in football, a lot of vulnerable young athletes. Amanda was seeing it in her world in respect of uh, a lot of vulnerable young students. And thinking, actually, around just some simple basic principles about from the age of 16 to 21, where you're in education and you are learning a skill, a subject, if you like, or in football from the age of 16 to 21, what were the sort of character traits that you would want your 21-year-old child to come out of there with? Uh, and I wrote 10 words down, 10 simple things, and there's things like leadership, you'd want them to be a leader, you'd want them to be able to analyse themselves, analyse others, you'd want them to have had a good life skills around a charity project or international experience, you'd want them to be able to handle themselves presenting to an audience, and become a rounded individual prepared for work, prepared for employment, and started to think about how that would become the heart of an education project rather than it just being around getting the certificate and the degree. Uh, because actually, as a football player, if you've got the, the football degree, which is the skill, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a fantastic Premier League player without the character and the personality and the resilience. So we started to think about how to flip it on its head and create a, how could we execute a, a curriculum or a, a, an academic uh, qualification that in that had built into it and embedded into it these sort of real life qualities that you need and industry it, uh, as well I think is experienced a lot of these uh, deficiencies if you like sure. so we started off a little bit of a seed project a bit of seed money going in Amanda went away and sort of thought about how to bring this to life uh, around these pillars that I'd, I'd written down and we started then to engage with 
Lancaster University. They absolutely love the idea of this sort of approach. And then obviously then with corporate partners, obviously Microsoft were here today and sort of the culmination of sort of 12 months work now, Greg, yeah, would you say? Months, 12, 12 months. 12 months of work with Microsoft now, looking at co-design of curricula with industry and not sort of looking at it from an academic perspective or just from an academic perspective. Mm -hmm. So it really is a sort of trying to be a little bit different uh, around um, a sort of a university proposal and that's where it stemmed from really, our experiences in our own individual sectors. And how did that relationship with Microsoft come about? Did you have to go and do the pitch to them? How, you know, how, how were you introduced well, to them? Well, eventually, yes. I think initially it was uh, Stacey, uh, one of our relationship managers who was working for Education 92, contacted, I think it was Insight, wasn't yeah, it, it was locally, Insight, yeah. in Manchester and had the initial contact. And then Amanda, obviously, was our project director for Education 92, been working on it with me from sort of day one. Yeah. Um, established contact with Craig and his team uh, in London. Yeah. Uh, I, I then sort of came down there after where there had lo a lot of work have already uh, had gone on in terms of explanation around the prospect, the project, how we would partner. Uh, and yeah, uh, it, it just obviously walking into the Microsoft offices in London, just a, such an energetic, innovative, vibrant space straight away made me think that actually this is what UA92 is. Yeah, it's yeah. not conventional, it's not traditional, it's thinking outside of the box. Uh, the cultures are aligned uh, in terms of how we wanted to, things to be and you got that from before you even met somebody in Microsoft actually just by walking into the offices and then obviously when you sit down with Craig and the team, the passion for the company is there straight yeah. away you know, and it, it hits home that you know, we've met with various uh, senior figures in the Microsoft team uh, and they don't just talk about their product. They, in fact, very very rarely talk to us about their product. They're more talking about culture, environment, yeah. mm. and um, how to make things better generally. Yeah. I think that ultimately it just seemed like a sort of a match made in heaven. That sounds a little bit cliched, but it really was. Sure. Well, Craig, let's, let's bring you in at this point. What, what was your thoughts when these guys turn up, talk through the whole project? Yeah. And also, what, how, you know, how much does, does a project like this rely on partners like, like yourselves? Well, I, I, I'd like to say first and foremost, the, the project is all about UA92. You know, does it does it rely on us? I, 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 I'd, I'd hope not, because I think that the um, all of the the intellectual horsepower is coming and the passions coming from from Gary to to drive us. We're here to support as much as we can, and I think Gary's just done a great job of talking to. Uh, what is a great story, really, and how we got engaged? This isn't a traditional partnership for us either. You know, I've worked in the education team for four years and if I think about some of the partnerships that we ordinarily do, fantastic partnerships, they don't look anything like this. So I knew, the same way as Gary knew straight away, that, that he was speaking a different language when he came to Microsoft as opposed to anyone else. I knew straight away that this is a project that we wanted to be part of, that we could absolutely add some value to. Um, and I think especially as Gary said, outside of the, the realms of just technology, yeah. it did start off as a technology conversation. How can Microsoft support X, Y, Z elements of our university? We very, quick, very quickly, after some simple discussions, realized that there's a lot more we can add to that, whether it's apprenticeships and our commitment to digital skills, um, whether it's our, our ambitions towards uh, empowering everyone on the planet to achieve more, using technology. It, it, it's right across the board, and I think that's what struck me and then ultimately allowed me to go back to the Derek and the Chris and the Cindy to explain that, guys, we've got something here that we really, really need to, to double down on and yeah. focus on. Are you guys able to share the kind of funding that's required to get this to launch? Do you mean from the university side? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
probably a little too much detail, but it's safe to say that with our partners uh, in Trafford Council, uh, who have just acquired a campus, a huge plot of land, and our own uh, input with Lancaster, it's into the... Lots of money. Pots of money. Lots of money. <laughs> Lots of money. All right, we won't go into too much more detail. <laughs> but um, in, in terms of when the students enroll, I know you mentioned some of the key principles that you wrote down at, at, at the start, Gary. What kind of stuff can they expect when they enroll? You know, what kind of things well, are they going to go through? Number one, they have to have a credible degree. Yeah. And that's our part of the Lancaster uh, University, Sunday Times University of the Year. I think top ten university have been now for many, many years. I don't think people realise the achievements of Lancaster University and what they're actually doing year in, year out in terms of the sort of level, uh, the, 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 the sort of class that they're in. Uh, they're up there with the be very best universities in this country. So I think number one is credibility of degree. I think that number two is the job. They want uh, People want a job. They just don't want to spend three years of their life and a lot of money without, at the end of it, getting a really good job that's suitable for them, that pays them well, that gives them that sort of stimulation every morning to wake up. But when what the businesses want, businesses want oven-baked cakes. They want to be able, no, they do. They want, yeah, they want yeah. people to come into their businesses who are actually motivated to be in there and knowledgeable enough to be in there, got the same culture. So if you think about it, I think this sort of what I would call private-public partnership, if you like, or education-business partnership, I know it's not the first. There are obviously many universities have work placements, but where really it's ingrained from day one that you are actually going to be in, in an industry-led high quality academic degree is to me something that I think people do want and what these students will to be fair strive for so it will be around definitely the quality of the degree and the quality of the prospect of employment at the end of it. What's the uh, what's the plan then what, what do you have to go through to get the doors open? <laughs> um, we're uh, hope well we're still hoping we are going to open our doors in September 19 student right. recruitment starts in the new year we've got a lot to do you know this is no longer an idea and a a sort of few words on a piece of paper anymore it's it's real and we yeah. are now moving into execution phase uh, there is significant meetings going on between microsoft between ua92 there are uh, there is a lot of resource now in place on the uh, university side to be able to ensure that we can deliver this over the coming months so it's now moving into a different level of phase it becomes exciting it's real uh, and something that I couldn't wait for. I mean, it's been, say, we've been at it for two years with Microsoft for 12 months, and we've got another two years before we open our doors, but it doesn't seem like a long time. No, and Craig, Microsoft's involvement in that whole process? So, like, like I said, really, we're, we're here to support UA92. So we, we, we're in a moment in listening phase, yeah. back, back to listening phase. The early stages, we had a listen, we understood exactly um, some, of the, some of the key principles that Gary's spoken us through and, and really try to identify where we can map uh, you know, the value on that, that we can bring. From, from there now, it's like Gary says, we're getting into the detail now, we're understanding, so what does it mean um, <clears throat> for a UA92 student to walk through them doors, feel the exhilaration, feel the, the passion that, that, that Gary and the team want to bring yeah. to that university um, and how can we use technology and frankly use some of our um, some of our other assets that we have as a, as a huge corporate partner to, uh, to, to just enable, am, amplify um, and increase anything that UA92 want to do. Sure. Gary, you're, you're clearly passionate about the local community around Manchester with all the projects you're undertaking with Class 92, but just in terms of you know, this particular project with UA92, do you have any plans to grow it beyond the surrounding area of Old Trafford? I think the, answer, the short answer is yes. 
but I think it would be very wrong at this stage to even think about talking. It's almost like saying our ambition this season is to win the league, but we're going to think about winning the league next se season before we've actually won this one. And yeah. I think we really have to prove concept one. We have to make sure that this one in, in Trafford and Manchester is a success and focus all our attention on that. Of course, our ambition is to impact as many people as possible with what we believe to be a compelling offer. And that means, obviously, growth into different areas. It'd be wrong of us to sit here and say, no, we don't want to grow. That would be, well, just be purely wrong and, and, and strange. However, please don't mistake ambition for uh, us taking our eye off the ball of what is a very difficult task to establish this university in the next two years, make this one a success. And you know, once you've proven something, and obviously it opens up a whole new world for you to be able to expand. But like I say, yes, we do, but with very much a focus on what we're, what we're looking to achieve in, in the first project. Okay, so I know you guys are busy today and have got a presentation to do uh, shortly. So final question to you, where can people go for more information or any details on the project? They can go to www.ua92.ac.uk. You said that like you weren't reading it. Absolutely was reading it. <laughs> Fantastic sweets, by the way. Well done. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, Craig Parker and uh, Gary Neville, thank you very much for joining the Thanks podcast. Thanks, Thanks well for done. having us. Cheers. Thank you. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to the show in iTunes by searching for the C-Suite Podcast in the iTunes store. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. Joining me now from uh, NHS Blood and Transplant uh, to talk us through the impact technology is having on this service is their Chief Digital Officer, Aaron Powell. Uh, Aaron, um, can you talk us through the digital transformation that's helping to improve the way NHS manages the blood and, and organ donation? Absolutely. So technology really uh, is uh, making a huge difference to NHS Blood and Transplants and uh, really helping us to uh, transform the way that we save and improve patients' lives, which is fundamentally what our mission is. We're responsible for providing a safe and reliable supply of blood to hospitals in England and for managing the UK's uh, organ donation and transplantation uh, system uh, across the whole of the country. And we use technology really to enable us to connect our services better, uh, to connect the uh, data that we hold, uh, to connect our processes up better, both within NHS Blood and Transplant, but also out into the wider NHS and into the, uh, the, the places that we serve, uh, but also to then uh, personalise the services that we offer to our donors. Uh, everything that we do uh, relies upon the generosity of a donor, uh, be that a blood donor or someone, uh, a family who uh, unfortunately are in tragic circumstances have, have been told that someone, their loved one has died. Uh, and uh, is willing to uh, donate that, 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 that person's organs for the purposes of transplantation uh, because three people still die every day in the UK waiting for an organ transplant because right. there aren't enough. Our job really is to make sure that we connect the information up and get the information accurately from one place to another as quickly as possible, that we, uh, we manage a, an efficient system uh, that enables us to, to really attract uh, and work with donors uh, who... Uh, our busy people have uh, lots of things that they need to be doing. Um, so we use, for example, the power of Microsoft Azure to uh, manage our appointment booking system, uh, which allows us to, to make about 139,000 appointments every single month for blood wow. donation. Okay. We use uh, Dynamics CRM to manage our transplant waiting list so that the clinicians who are making decisions about whether to accept an organ for transplant uh, have the information that they need uh, at their fingertips uh, whenever they need it through, through the use of the, uh, the CRM technology. Um, 
we power more and more of our systems using the cloud because we see the cloud really as the engine that drives a lot of our digital transformation and enables us to pull the data together that we have and then to use that data intelligently uh, and to, uh, to, to gain greater insights, both into the way that uh, our donors behave, but also uh, into the health of patients uh, and into the efficiency of our own operations. Uh, and more and more we're moving into to that sort of intelligence space, trying to understand what the vast amounts of data that we have uh, really tell us. One of the um, sort of key aspects that we've been talking about on this on this special series of, of podcasts that we're producing from uh, Future Decoded has, has, has been about the creating of the culture of digital transformation, you know, within the various different organisations. I was just wondering if you'd faced any challenges, you know, bringing all the various different teams involved, you know, in, in the whole, you know, organisation through this journey with you. We've certainly faced some some challenges. I think uh, probably one of the first things that uh, we had to address is just what is this digital stuff. Um, it, you know, it's very easy for it to become a buzzword that everyone throws around digital transformation. What do we actually mean by that? Yeah. Um, and that's why we've used the terms uh, sort of connectedness and personalization. The two, the two sort of outcomes for us of what the digital technologies enable. And then we've talked about technologies that support, for example, automation, uh, better integration, whether that's uh, integration of data, integration of processes, integration of systems between the cloud and edge and, and on-premise and, 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 and uh, hosted systems. Uh, and then, then systems that support intelligence and decision making. Um, those are kind of the, the watchwords that we've used to explain to people what this digital stuff is all about. Um, but from a cultural perspective, it feels as much about um, inspiring people, giving them a sense uh, that it is okay to think the unthinkable uh, and to think about how our organization would be different if some of the barriers, some of the, uh, the blockers to that connectedness were no longer there. And then dealing with some of the fears. Inevitably, uh, people hear uh, sort of stories about technology. You know, some people get the, the, the horror stories about, well, you know, these, these robots are coming to take over your lives. Um, but, but sometimes people just say, Look, you know, I just don't get this technology stuff. Um, you know, I don't have a computer at home. It's not something that I do. And we have to work with them and, and explain to people how actually the technology uh, will make their working lives better. And so as an organization in, in our digital transformation journey, we very much focused on uh, our hospital customers, the donors and patients that we work with, but as a third plank and an equal plank, our staff, and making sure that we are offering uh, rich and innovative digital services to our staff to make their working lives better uh, as a way of ensuring that they, they are bought into our digital transformation journey. In terms of making things better, could you pick one part of the whole technology that has been sort of like the best aspect of it or is it just the whole, whole package? I mean, a, a lot of it's really good. I think the, the key thing for me is, is through th using things like the power of the cloud uh, and some of the platform-based technologies that we're using, yeah. it's the ability to be able to access the information anywhere that we can get the information, uh, we, we can get at the information when we need it, uh, and we can make sure that people have the information to hand when they make decisions. Yeah. That's really important. Obviously, technology, you know, development, advancement is, 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 is at such a pace and innovation with, you know, within all the things that we've been seeing here at Future Decoded, but if there was something that was at the top of your wish list at the moment, what, what would that be? Uh, bizarrely, actually, I think it would be, it would be dealing with the, the unconnected bit. Right. Um, so, a lot of the challenges that we face are, are around uh, going to places around the country where connectivity actually isn't there. Um, we like to think that there's universal connectivity, that, you know, that, that 4G and 5G are going to solve our connectivity problems, but actually they don't in every, lo in every location. And so for us, 
greater sort of online offline synchronicity of the of, of systems the ability to sort of um, to flex in and flex out uh, from sort of a, a connected world uh, and do that in a relatively seamless way I think is probably my, my, my biggest ask okay finishing off the, uh, the this interview we've got an opportunity here with all our listeners uh, to add to your database of, uh, of registered blood donors um, if people want to add their names to that list where's the best place for them to go Okay, so if people want to become blood donors, uh, then they can sign up at blood.co.uk or they can download our app uh, on uh, the uh, Google Play Store or um, the Apple uh, App Store. Uh, To register as an organ donor, go to organdonation.nhs.uk. Or if you uh, don't want to use the technology, you can always call 0300 123 2323. Old school stuff. Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, Aaron Powell, best of luck in in continuing this amazing work that you're doing. Um, And uh, thanks again for joining the show. Pleasure. Thank you. Capstone Hill Search are global recruitment experts for the public relations, public affairs, corporate and digital communications industries. We are the only recruitment partners to the PRCA in the UK, PR Council in the USA and the ICCO's endorsed recruitment partner internationally, with offices in London, Melbourne, Sydney, as well as New York, covering the UK, Europe, continental USA and Australasia, whether you are looking for a new role or have a role to fill, get in touch at capstonehillsearch.com. Welcome back to the show, and it's also a welcome back to my uh, next guests, Andrew Cook and Hector Minto, who we spoke to on the previous podcast about how Microsoft is helping uh, businesses engage with first-line employers. Uh, but now I want to chat to them more specifically about the important topic of accessibility. Uh, so as a quick reminder, Andrew is a Senior Product Marketing Manager at Microsoft, working on FirstLine, and Hector is Microsoft's Accessibility Evangelist for the EMEA region. Uh, so Hector, I'm going to come to you first with the, uh, the first question. Um, you're working on a blueprint for accessibility, and that involves charities, NGOs, and and government too. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about what your role involves and and what you're hoping to achieve with that blueprint? Sure. Uh, So so my role is to be the the eyes and ears and the voice of accessibility in Europe for for Microsoft. Um, We live in a time of digital transformation. You know, all across the world, businesses, education, governments are revisiting the way they deliver technology. you know, the, the world is more mobile, the world is more connected. We've got to make sure that we don't leave people with disabilities behind. If we think of that kind of whole cliche of the fourth industrial revolution, it's like every time there has been an industrial revolution, there's been a kind of a sticking plaster, a patch for people with disabilities to include them. Uh, we feel that in this, this, this era of digital transformation, there's a real opportunity, not just to make sure that we cater for people with disabilities and provide amazing solutions, but also to actually realize the real advantage that thinking around disability delivers for all businesses, all organizations. So that blueprint, there are so many interested parties in disability and accessibility, and I, and I would probably summarize it as follows. It's, it's, it's governments with real aims, ambitions around disability. Uh, there is policy that supports accessibility. You know, websites need to be accessible, but also products need to be accessible. So, so I'm talking a lot to kind of governments about this topic. There's the, the kind of the business drive. You know, many, many businesses want to cater for customers with disabilities, but also employ people, people with disabilities and recognize the diversity and inclusion that they, they bring. And then the final pillar is, is actually internal. It's like 
how does Microsoft present and talk on accessibility? How does a sales rep or a sales executive or, or a reseller or anybody who's engaged with Microsoft products, how do they represent our true core values around accessibility and empowering every person, every organization on the planet to achieve more? So what we're trying to do is kind of work out what that jigsaw looks like in the UK right now. You know, what are the important things that government need to bring? What are the important things that business needs to bring? Who are the charities who can really promote this message and actually promote the message to their, you know, the people that they represent, that technology is going to empower them, that technology is going to make them more employable? We're essentially looking at what does that jigsaw look like. Yeah. Once we work that out in the UK, you know, and there's stuff going on in other countries, but once that's, you know, we've really got that tied down in the UK, we then want to kind of scale that out. You mentioned the charities there. Are you able to sure. say some of the charity partners that you're working with? On, yeah, on so this? we don't, ex you know, we don't exclude any, <laughs> any charity. You know, we want to in in engage with all. Yeah. But, but what I would say there is that there's, a, there's two things there. There's the, what I call the bottom-up and the top-down approach. You know, we want to be creating amazing accessible experiences that reach people, but we need the supporters and the fans in the disability community to kind of really kind of say, check this out you know look at the new translator app look at what narrator can do now built into windows you know what are these amazing features that now empower people with disabilities so so we've put a lot of work into kind of blind tech how we determine that uh, but we're also working a lot with people with hearing loss uh, we're also working a lot with people with mobility issues so right. so there's no kind of key partners. We don't want to include or exclude anybody unnecessarily. Uh, but but the, the, the three things where we've probably made the most progress recently are certainly in kind of the experience of somebody who's blind or has low vision in their in their computing experience. Uh, there's mobility. People with severe physical disabilities can now type an email with eye control alone. We need them to know that. Yeah, uh, and then something like subtitles. You know, we all know that subtitles empower us all when we're watching the football in the pub and you're in a noisy environment. But what we want people to recognize is that PowerPoint has free subtitles built in available that can be available in every school lesson, every, every business meeting. You know, this technology is becoming uh, more accessible for everybody. Brilliant. Andrew's nodding away there. Let's, let's bring him in uh, into the conversation. Um, I was wondering if you can talk through some of the technologies that are being introduced to first-line products, obviously the area that, that you're responsible uh, with, that, that, were, that will help with accessibility. Sure, not a problem. I think when we think about accessibility, it's important that we expand our concept and we look at that root word, access, uh, and not just think about the typical disabilities that we might encounter, but think about somebody, um, you know, an immigrant that comes in. They're learning English, they may be able to converse okay, but they could have trouble reading it, for example. So we have to cater for a very broad range of people and a broad definition of accessibility. So what are, what are we doing? Well, you can start off with your basic operating system platform. Um, today you'll see uh, you know, things like the ability to set the contrast, sticky keys, uh, and so on that's available there. Windows Hello, right, so that you can just very easily use facial recognition, iris recognition, to log in and authenticate yourself to the computer. Um, you don't have to remember long, complicated uh, passwords if that's a challenge for you. Then we can move on and think about intelligent services, and this is where the, the, the magic happens. And, Hector sort of referred to uh, subtitling in PowerPoint. Now PowerPoint, you can actually choose the language that you want it subtitled in. Uh, sometimes with some interesting results, but for somebody who, uh, let's say in the US it would be Spanish, if you're doing a presentation, you know, some of your audience are not 
uh, Native American speakers, putting it in Spanish will allow them to fill in the gaps as you go along and present that. Um, and then when we go back to accessibility, I, I dare say a lot of people don't realize that in, in our office applications, we have a built-in accessibility checker. And it will go through and it will check the whole document and then it will give you guidance on what you should do and more importantly, why. So not only are we telling you that you should do this, we're educating you as to the benefit of doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good example. What I like about that example is it, it, it looks at who is responsible for accessibility. So, so should the person with a disability be bringing all of the, the knowledge themselves, or is there a responsibility on all of us in this cloud-connected world to be authoring accessible content? You know, when I send a PowerPoint out to, uh, to, to, a, to a business to share on, on what we're doing around accessibility right now, how do I know that the person that's receiving that email is not blind? I don't know. So, so it's a duty on me to make that, you know, make that document land and get its message across. So I should check it for accessibility. The secondary, what if somebody shares that document further within their, uh, within their, uh, within their organization? Even more chance of coming across somebody who is blind or, or has a disability. So, so, so in this cloud-connected world, authoring accessible content is a really exciting topic and actually one that businesses are recognizing the benefit of. Oh, absolutely. And, and here with PowerPoint, we have design, a designer within PowerPoint. So it will take your cluttered looking slides and turn them into you know, beautiful presentations. And while it looks good, the real key of what it's doing, and it's using AI to do that, but the real key is that it's making it understandable. So you go from something that's very cluttered with nobody with somebody with very little design experience, and now you have something that's easy to follow, understand, and comprehend. Um, you know, I go get an image, I drop it into PowerPoint. Alt text is automatically generated. We go, we analyze the image, and we go, hey, big red apple. You can go edit that. But we've started you, and we've given you a very visual reminder on screen that there's alt text in here and so you can go and prepare it. These are things that, you know, we can't, it's a journey to understand accessibility. It's been a journey for me, I can tell you, and uh, I had no idea a month and a half ago. I, I really didn't understand yeah, accessibility. Yeah. Now I'm starting to get a glimmer. And so I see that if we wait for people to go do it by themselves, it's not gonna happen. Sure. But if we can give them little bumper rails, little guidelines and pop it up in front of them, then they start to learn and appreciate it. So uh, that's just an example of some of the stuff that's going on. Okay. And then that feeds back up through into this conversation around HR and employment. Uh, you know, if people know that they're making documents accessible, that people who are blind or have physical disabilities can access those documents, you're making it easier for HR to make positive decisions about recognizing the talent that people with disabilities bring to the workplace and that you've made the workplace accessible for them. Well, that, that leads me uh, nicely on to my next question, actually, Hector, which I wanted to ask you about. In, in the US, um, October marked the 70th anniversary of the National Disability Employment Awareness Month, so 70th Amazing. anniversary. Uh, so we just just in case someone's listening to this, uh, next year we're recording this in 2017. Um, but uh, it, it's organized by the Office of uh, Disability Employment Policy there. Um, and this year's theme was uh, Inclusion Drives Innovation. Now, um, Jenny Leigh-Flurry, your Chief Accessibility officer uh, wrote a blog post on uh, the Microsoft.com website about it and it included a, a great video that I watched about the um, autism hiring program uh, at, at Microsoft, part of your inclusion, uh, inclusive hiring initiative. Can you tell us a little bit more about that whole program and, and sure. what that means at sure. Microsoft? Sure, I mean I wasn't actively involved in it, uh, the, the, the team in the US really led on this. 
there was a real recognition that, that the, the recruitment process, you know, automatically excluded certain people. You know, you know, if the process put somebody in a highly stressful interview process with a panel to show their technical skills, you're, you're not only putting people off with, say, autism from even attending that type of interview, that highly stressful experience, you're actually just not letting them demonstrate the best of themselves. So they looked at the entire recruitment process and said, look, we're going to proactively recruit people with autism into Microsoft. We recognize the neurodiverse viewpoint they can bring to us as a business, yet we recognize the ideas that somebody with autism might have that are completely difficult, different to, to Mr. Standard, okay? Yeah. Uh, so, so there are huge benefits in getting that type of talent into a company like Microsoft, but the system did not allow, you know, the process did not allow them to attend an interview, demonstrate their best selves, uh, and, and make their way in through the front door. So it was a very proactive approach that said, we will recruit people with autism into Microsoft, but we're going to learn how to adapt our process. Now, those adaptations in the recruitment process are actually things that we can all learn from. Why do we want to put people in highly stressful environments to, uh, you know, to, to find a job? You know, why do we want to put people off from demonstrating their, their best selves just because that's always the way we've done it? Yeah? Uh, actually, by, by, by making the recruitment process kind of uh, more like a workshop, bringing people in for a week rather than a, like an hour just to show their best selves. You know, we actually find, you know, true talent and actually we've got more chance of keeping that talent in an organization if we've, if we've had that honest uh, information exchange through the recruitment process. So, so it's been an amazing success. You know, we've got some incredible talent into Microsoft. The challenge now is to take that global. And yeah. as I said uh, about the blueprint, we've got to find out, you know, what, what works in Redmond, but does it work in the UK? Uh, you know, does it work in France? Does it work in Germany? You know, what, what are the differences in accommodation or the different processes that are going to work well in those different countries? But, but absolutely, I mean, the intention there, you know, the global intention in, is to get more people with disabilities to bring that neurodiverse problem-solving attitude into Microsoft. I mean, I always say this to people, if you want to meet a problem solver, meet somebody with a disability, yeah. with a lifelong disability. They yeah. have spent their lives working out how to get through a situation. Don't we all want that in our workplace? Don't we want those skills in our workplace? Absolutely. Well, yeah. I, I should add that if anyone wants to read Jenny's uh, blog and see the video, then uh, just search online for Microsoft N-D-E-A-M and, uh, and you'll find it. And it is worth a, a read and, and, and watching that, that video. Now, uh, final question uh, for you both. Um, if you had one message to share with other businesses listening to this podcast about this whole topic of accessibility, uh, what would it be? Andrew, let's, uh, let's start with you on this one. You know, I think the... the simple message here is it takes a cultural change to make this happen uh, and somebody needs to start it and hopefully it starts at the top and I would say start to listen and talk to your fellow workers what you'll find when you do that is that I guarantee before you've talked to five or six of them you'll find somebody who can tell you a disability story either in their family it could be themselves if they choose to share it. And you can build on those experiences and those understandings and then invest in diversity and inclusion workshops. There's some just amazing experience, I mean life-changing experiences where people actually sometimes end up in tears, either realizing how short-sighted they've been or seeing a new opportunity, a new window of how to look at people opening up in front of them. So invest in those type of experiences to change people's attitudes and give people a fresh set of eyes to look at, 
you know, look, it just could be somebody at your meeting table who speaks with an accent, maybe like I have, <laughs> and you can't understand them. Don't write them off. They have a different experience. Work to understand them. And so that's what I'd say. Embrace that cultural change, lead it, and enable it. Hector? I think I would leave with just recognizing that 70% of disability is invisible. You know, I've been speaking to people at Future Decoded who've said, oh, we don't have people, many people with disabilities in our workplace. And I'm like, you do. Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't know it. So, so this, this concept of allowing people to find tools quickly and easily, maybe without disclosing their disability, is one of the, one of the critical issues to get across. Disability can be permanent. It can be situational and it can be temporary. So somebody can injure their arm as well as lose their arm, as well as being unable to use their arm at a specific time. So when companies invest in this topic of accessibility, they actually learn how to, how to, how to cater for people who have either the permanent, the situational or the temporary form of disabilities. And that drives productivity. Excellent. Uh, Andrew Cook and Hector Minto, thanks for joining the show. Uh, so that's it for this uh, second episode from Microsoft Future Decoded. Uh, if you want to get more information on any of the topics that we've discussed, uh, just go to the website futuredecoded.com. Uh, we'll be back with the next episode on uh, innovation and technology trends. But in the meantime, don't forget you can listen to the previous episode from Future Decoded, which was on the uh, topic of driving cultural transformation. And in fact, all previous shows of the C-Suite podcast series at our website at C-Suite podcast.com. Plus, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher by searching for the C-Suite podcast. And if you are on iTunes, please do give the series a positive rating and review as that helps us up the business charts. Uh, you can also get involved in the conversation on our Facebook page and Twitter feed, which are linked from the website. And finally, if you want to get involved in the series in any way yourself, then you can contact me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith or via the uh, contact form on the website. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>